Hey everyone, I'm Luke Marzano and you're listening to the Church Relevance Podcast. This is a weekly discussion series with ministry leaders whose stories offer valuable advice and guidance. We engage in vital dialogue to encourage Christian leaders who might be battling burnout, navigating conflict, or struggling to find balance. Our mission is to ignite passion, create community, and inspire new ministry, one conversation at a time. In this episode, Pastor Chris DeVitro of Reading, Pennsylvania, discusses why authentic leadership is critical for a ministry leader's growth, as well as the growth of friends, family, and community. He currently serves Park Road Presbyterian Church as senior pastor and is an adjunct pastor at both Alvernia University and Eastern University. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Today, I have the privilege to sit down with Pastor Chris DeVitro. Chris, how are you doing today? Luke, I am doing well, my friend. How are you doing today? I can't complain. It's We're getting fall weather here. It's cooling off, so life is good. Yes, it is gorgeous here as well. <laughs> well, with that, let, let's kind of dive in a little bit. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little more about yourself, title, role, where you're located, things like that. Yeah. Um, well, so where do I begin? Uh, let me begin with the important things. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Liz, for 11 years. Uh, we have three kids together. Our oldest is Alethea. She is almost six. Our middle is Judah. He is four. Our youngest is Evangeline, and she is two. Currently, we live in Reading, Pennsylvania. I'm originally from New Jersey. Liz is from Colorado. Uh, We spent five years in South Carolina before landing here in Reading two years ago. Uh, I have the great privilege of being the senior pastor of Park Road Presbyterian Church. Uh, Park Road Church was originally founded as First Presbyterian Church of Reading back in 1814, uh, and effective Easter 2019, we moved into a new location and uh, rebranded ourselves as Park Road Presbyterian Church. So I've been here with this congregation for a little bit over two years. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor of organizational leadership at Alvernia University here in Reading, and I'm an adjunct professor in the College of Business and Leadership at Eastern University over in Philadelphia. Wow. So you're busy. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm a little busy. Uh, don't sleep a whole lot and drink a whole lot of coffee. <laughs> and how long overall, how long have you been serving in the ministry? Uh, that's a great question. I, I'm 34. Uh, I graduated college in 2007 and almost immediately went into seminary and began serving as a student ministry pastor. Uh, in New Jersey. And so four years in New Jersey, five years in South Carolina and two years here. So I don't know, what is that going on 12, 13 years now? Wow. And I think in Jersey years, four years in Jersey is equal to like what, 10 years anywhere else? That is true. Uh, I, so again, I was born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, and I can affectionately say that the best view of New Jersey is the one in your rear view mirror when you drive away. <laughs> On the idea of driving away from New Jersey, kind of what what brought you from growing up in New Jersey to where you are today? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. And you know, uh, so many pastors have such a great call story of being called into ministry. um, And I just don't have that. I look back and I see the sovereignty of God leading and guiding me. I was not raised in the church. Uh, My mom led me to faith in Christ at a young age. Um, When I went to college, I went to major in neuroscience. I had spent 
uh, a number of summers interning in a stem cell lab, another summer interning uh, working with rats and an animal model for autism. Thought I would get a PhD in neuroscience and just do research my entire life. Uh, went to college and began with my chemistry, my biology, my organic chemistry, and it was horrific. Uh, it just did not uh, excite me in any way. Um, while we were in college, we got heavily involved with the Coalition for Christian Outreach. Uh, I can't say enough great things about their ministry. Uh, we would go to the Jubilee Conference in Pittsburgh every February, which was a, a conference geared towards equipping students uh, to serve Christ through their workplace and through their vocation. And my first year, the speaker was Lakita Garth. And what Lakita Garth said was, a pastor and a missionary are not more important in God's kingdom than are a teacher and a doctor and a lawyer. And she went on to say that, all of us have this sacred secular split in our ways of thinking that we have church and Bible study on one hand, and then a solid dividing line from work and family and friends and hobbies. And she said, that's not what the Lord wants. The Lord wants all of life to be worship, all of life to be sacred, and he can use any vocation in the kingdom. And so that was mind-blowing to me. And at first, that kind of reinvigorated me to uh, contribute more time and effort and energy to pursuing neuroscience as a vocation. Um, but pretty soon, you know, it just, it didn't, it didn't work for me. And I can't say it any better than that. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, but I began participating in a number of mission trips to Jamaica. I ended up double majoring in philosophy and neuroscience. Uh, I became very good friends with a number of local pastors who really invested in me and poured into me. And at some point, I, I just had this feeling of, I don't know, maybe I'll try ministry. Um, so I graduated college, uh, spent a year working in a pizzeria, spent a year um, as a student minister, spent a year in seminary and thought, you know what, I really do think that ministry is the right fit. So went to seminary full-time uh, while I was also working in student ministry. Uh, about the time that I graduated from seminary, uh, we wanted to have uh, children. And so that meant my wife staying home and the church where I was couldn't afford to bring me on full-time. So we moved to South Carolina. Uh, I came on staff with Chapin United Methodist Church, uh, a fantastic church. Um, and it was really interesting uh, I am currently at a Presbyterian church. I am very comfortably reformed in my theology and philosophy of ministry. Uh, and so to spend five years on staff at a Methodist megachurch was uh, night and day different from who I am and how I view ministry, yet it was the best thing for me. Uh, I was probably at times too immature and too disrespectful, uh, but I had so many wonderful conversations with my senior pastor uh, and really helped me to grow and develop and become more well-rounded in how I view theology and my philosophy of ministry. Uh, so very, very formative years for me. 
while we were in South Carolina, we had our first two children. Liz was pregnant with our third. And we began to say, you know what, if we're going to have our family put the kids in school, begin to put down roots, we want to be where we're going to be long term. So we wound up uh, looking for a senior pastor position, and we wound up getting hired by First Presbyterian Church of Reading here in Reading, Pennsylvania. And it was a unique church in a very unique season of life. First Pres of Reading was founded back in uh, 1814. Uh, and they had been in their current building since 1848. So lots of history and tradition in that building. For a number of reasons, they're a really complex. The, the church was really thriving and growing in the late 90s, uh, probably between three and 400 people. By the time I got hired in 2017, the church had dwindled to about 70 or 80 people on a Sunday morning. Um, the average age was probably around 70. Uh, in addition to my family, there were two other families with young kids. Um, but what was compelling to my family about coming to First Pres of Reading was they were in the process of selling their old building, relocating, purchasing a new building, and completely building a new building, which would be a home base for a new season of ministry. And that was really exciting. So I had always told myself from day one, getting hired as a senior pastor, I would spend two years watching and waiting and listening and observing and just getting to know the congregation and, and earning their trust. Um, and within six months of getting hired by First Pres, uh, we had begun a capital campaign. We entered into negotiations to buy a building, hire a contractor, begin renovations, begin the process of selling our building and moving into the new building. Um, so by Easter of 2019, we were moved into our brand new building and uh, began life as Park Road Presbyterian Church. So it literally hit the ground running. <laughs> literally hit the ground running. Not to mention, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, when we moved, Liz was seven months pregnant. So we landed, got unpacked into the house, and then in three or four weeks had a baby. And so we had a newborn. <laughs> First, I love the, the idea of all that groundwork and field work that you went through from college all the way to now, just prepping you for where you are. Kind of along that journey, where did you see organizational leadership start to kick in? Was it because it had to kick in for you or what really got you kind of going that direction? Yeah, um, I've always been a bit of a nerd. I've always loved to learn. Um, and I've always seen academia as something in the future I thought I would love to do. Um, so while we were in South Carolina, I began looking around for PhD programs and I love being in ministry, but I had the thought at the time, I think I was 30, that I have no marketable skills beyond being in ministry, which again, I love, but if I ever need to find a job outside of ministry, I don't really have anything to fall back on. So I began looking for PhD programs that would serve me well, both in ministry, uh, but also in a world outside of ministry. Uh, and so I stumbled across Johnson University in Tennessee, 
and they offered a fantastic PhD in organizational leadership. Uh, and so as I began to go through that PhD program, just learned a tremendous amount of of uh, wisdom and knowledge and, and experience in how to analyze churches through the lens of organizational dynamics. What's been the biggest takeaway that you found from, from learning it and teaching it so far? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the biggest takeaway that I have found is people are sinful. Every single person is sinful. I completely affirm total depravity. And so any organization that exists is a collection of sinful people who have come together to try and do something. And people look at a church and assume that it is a collection of pure, holy, and loving people with pure motives and so no conflict ever arises. But the reality is church is just like any other organization. It is a collection of sinful people who come together for a purpose. And so you will have the same sort of conflict because people, unfortunately, because we're all sinners, don't come to church with pure motives or pure intentions. We might think that we do, but in truth and reality, we don't. Now, further, we're even, I think, often at a disadvantage. If you look at any social club like the Lions or the Rotary or even a country club, that there is some sort of social cohesion that binds those people together. And when you look at the church, it is fundamentally a collection of people with nothing in common except the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you read the book of Acts, chapter 16, it's the story of the founding of the church of Philippi. And who do you see as the first converts into the church at Philippi? Well, Lydia, the rich businesswoman, the slave girl who was formerly possessed, and you have the prison guard who was a blue-collar worker. And so you've got different socioeconomic standings in life. And yet they're knit together by the gospel, and Paul loves this church. Uh, and so I think both the strength and the weakness of the church is that it's a collection of people with nothing that knits them together except the gospel. And to the extent that we are able to, in humility, live into that, it's a beautiful and precious reality and to the extent that we allow our selfish, sinful preferences to get in the way, well, you have conflict, uh, and that grieves me. But it's a reality, and so we all have clay feet, and we all struggle together to love and edify one another and glorify God. What are some ways that the lack of organizational leadership technically hurt the church? Um, I know you talked about conflict, but uh, are there other areas or is con conflict kind of the main because no one knows how to, to deal with it once that occurs? Yeah, no. Um, so there's a passage in Proverbs and, and I mean, lots of pastors use it and it says where there's no vision, the people perish. And, and what it's really saying is where there's no prophetic vision, where there's no revelation, where there's no vision from scripture for people as a church, the people perish. And there's a, I think it's Young's literal translation that says 
uh, where there's no vision, the people run naked. And so left to their own devices, I believe that a church will default to self-seeking, self-serving, selfish tendencies. I think it is paramount that a church remember that they are called together to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're called together to love and serve one another, but the great commission is to go and make disciples. And so I think it is incumbent upon the church not just to be an organization for itself, but for those who are not yet part of the church. And I think so long as a church remembers that as it brings people in, it must send people out, it must uh, equip and release for mission and ministry. Uh, it, it can never be an entirely self-seeking, self-serving organization. Uh, but again, you know, we're all selfish people. You know, you wake up in the morning and the first person you think about is yourself. Uh, so I think the church uh, must constantly be reminded that it does not exist for itself, but it must exist for those who don't yet know Jesus. And that is how Christ is glorified when he's proclaimed in that way. And so, yes, the the fellowship of the church, the way in which we love and encourage one another is, you know, beautiful and compelling and attractive, uh, but we must be always looking outside the church as well. So in your two-year journey so far with Park Road, um, what has been your take on leadership? Yeah, um, well, so it's fascinating. Uh, I I was writing my PhD dissertation on authentic leadership, which is a specific leadership construct, and the way in which it can control or facilitate organizational adaptability. So authentic leaders predicting for and facilitating organizational change, how organizations change. And I just got plopped down right in the middle of this church undergoing this uh, nearly apocalyptic change season. And it was so much fun to be a part of. Um, so, so here's what I believe about authentic leadership. Authentic leadership is composed of four separate elements. And those are self-awareness, balanced processing, something called internalized moral perspective, and then relational transparency. So, so those are four big concepts what they really mean is self-awareness. Do you have an accurate understanding of your own strength and your own weaknesses? Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Balanced processing means do you have the ability to analyze data before you make a decision? Can you be intentional and methodical in the decisions that you make? Do you have a a well-formed, internalized moral perspective? Uh, What's your internal means of self-regulation in the decisions that you make in life? And then relational transparency. So that does not mean oversharing, but but do you share appropriate things in appropriate ways? So what does that mean for me in a church? It means that I always strive to be self-aware. I always crave feedback and I'm not afraid of feedback and that's both positive and negative feedback. It means that I try and be very diligent and methodical in making decisions and in gathering data 
and there's some uh, relational intelligence there because uh, well, certain people will give you feedback that's biased. And so you've got to have enough relational intelligence to discern what is good and accurate feedback and what is not so good feedback. So for instance, uh, there are people in my congregation who, when they speak, I stop and listen immediately to whatever they're saying because they have earned my trust and I believe in what they are saying. Uh, there are other people who sometimes when they offer feedback, it comes from a place of a, a, a different motivation. Uh, and so I have to take what they're saying with a grain of salt. So balance processing, internal moral perspective, I just have to be real clear on what scripture is saying for who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. And then relational transparency, uh, I, I try at all times to be cards on the table and be as open and honest with our folks. Uh, I try and leave very little to speculation. I try and communicate as much as possible at all times. And so John Cotter actually says that the average leader under communicates vision by a power of 10. So I try and communicate and over communicate and communicate differently uh, and mm -hmm. by the time I've just gotten tired of saying something, I think my people have just begun to hear me for the first time. <laughs> how, how has their response been um, with, with that? Yeah, it's been great. People have been very receptive. And, and again, you know, God is so gracious uh, and so wise. And so when I got here, uh, our people were, were thrilled about the idea of, of the move. I mean, th there was some fear and trepidation, but, but for the most part, they were gung-ho, they were eager, they were committed, they were excited. Um, and so they were very, um, they were ready to be persuaded for the move. And so it was beautiful. Um, so I needed to do very little convincing. It was just a little bit of guidance and direction and inspiration, and they were super excited and it worked very, very well. Do you have any examples of leaders that have not done that and kind of the outcome that you've seen from it and also other leaders that have done that and other results that you may have seen? I can't think of any examples. I just think that it's critical for pastors to know their strengths and their weaknesses uh, and to, uh, in great humility, receive feedback. And on that, with organizational leadership and authentic leadership, uh, do you have any good uh, suggestions or, or methods that the church or even the ministry leaders listening uh, can do to start to get better at that so that, that can ripple through their community? Uh, you know, again, uh, I always emphasize communication. Don't be afraid to over communicate. Um, don't be afraid to get two or three people that you really trust and that know you and love you and are eager to serve you and ask them for honest feedback. Uh, and the more that you create an open and honest culture of giving and receiving feedback and communicating clearly, that will become contagious. Kim Scott is a, a business writer and consultant, and she has developed a, a model of leadership that she calls radical candor. And for her, radical candor is a direct challenge coupled with a personal care. In other words, she counsels leaders to truly care about their employees 
but also to never be afraid to challenge them directly. So that if you care about your employees, but you never challenge them, it devolves into sentimental leadership and nothing gets done. Conversely, if you only challenge them, but never care about them, it devolves into just, you know, uh, obtuse aggression. And so never being afraid to challenge uh, and yet loving and caring for and serving your employees, that combination for her is the sweet spot. And I think, um, you know, that's got to be done with care and with diligence, because what somebody might consider a direct challenge, somebody else might consider, you know, overly aggressive. Mm, yeah. Uh, but I think it, it takes time. It, it takes a lot of relationship building. Uh, I think that your your congregation, your employees, your, your co-workers, your co-pastors, your elders have to know that you love and care about them and are willing to serve them no matter what. So for my wife and I, you know, we do a lot of entertaining in our home. We constantly have people over for dinner. We constantly do things to celebrate and serve our session, our elders, our, our deacons, our trustees, our staff, um, trying to let them know how much we love and care about them and value them. And, and over time, that relational um, investment bears fruit when you're making difficult decisions. So I, I'm a, about, let's say, 600 to 1,000% extroverted. So all that, I'm like, yes, that's what I thrive on and need. Uh, I know for some people out there, they're like, oh, like it's already enough trying to get me to small talk with people, let alone yeah. invest in that. Uh, but one of our primary focuses with Church Relevance is helping to prevent ministry burnout. Mm. Um, how have you found, I guess, one, do you find yourself more introverted or extroverted? And two, how have you found yourself kind of focusing on that self-care so you can better care for the community? Yeah, those are all great questions. Um, I probably am right on the border of introversion and extroversion. Uh, I can do well in a group for a time, and then I really need time to recharge. Um, so for me, and again, everybody is different. This just works really well for me. I am very regimented. My schedule is almost down to, you know, minute by minute. Um, I am awake at 4.15 most mornings. I am, you know, drinking coffee and reading scripture and praying until 5.05. I am out of the house by 5.30, at the gym, showered, leaving the gym by uh, about 7.25 or 7.30, to the office by 7.30, 7.45. Um, and then the, the day begins. So for me, my quiet time in the morning, uh, I am in the Psalms constantly. Uh, my wife and I do a Bible study together. Um, and, and I try and be really uh, intentional in those times, really praying scripture back to God, journaling out my thoughts and um, really seeking his wisdom, trying to be still and silent before him uh, and letting him lead and guide me. Uh, always praying for humility, always praying for wisdom, uh, always praying for sensitivity to the spirit and to, to the spirit's leading in my life, in my heart, um, always seeking to be patient, to trust his timing. Um, I am, you know, a type A person. I plan everything to a T uh, and try very hard um, to, to balance that planning with trusting in God's timing and God's provision um, so that I can be active 
in and diligent, um, but also waiting on, on his leading. Um, my wife and I try and do date nights frequently. It's tough with three kids. A babysitter's expensive. Uh, what we've begun to do is we'll make dinner for ourselves when the kids go to bed. So we'll put them down. We'll eat dinner and talk and catch up. And we try and just laugh and play games and not take ourselves too seriously. Um, I've got a number of mentors who I'll speak with regularly who check in on me. You know, I, I don't have many hobbies. I can't build things in my basement. I'm not handy. Um, but when I begun uh, as an adjunct professor, I found that was a really good outlet for me. That was a really good hobby for me. Just getting to use a different side of my brain, um, interacting with people outside the church world, that was really helpful for me. Just a, a breath of fresh air from uh, what can be a cocoon of, of the church world. Yeah. And when you're going between wearing that professor hat and pastor hat, have you found anywhere where those two worlds coincide that like that's your bread and butter and kind of vice versa too? Have you found where like, here's something that I think the church could benefit from that you've found from the education side? Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed. It's funny. Um, so I don't work at a Christian university. Uh, it's just in the Department of Business and Leadership. Um, but I have still found myself bringing that pastoral heart into the classroom. Um, what I do love is that the classroom is a far more accurate snapshot of our community. Uh, we are unfortunately, just like any other church, we are a fairly white, fairly affluent church. So we're not very diverse. Uh, and yet when I walk into the classroom, it is a mix of, uh, of backgrounds, of socioeconomic standings. Um, and so I value that diversity. Um, and so, you know, my students all know that I'm a pastor um, and certainly do, I do not um, evangelize during class, um, but I bring a lot of honesty to, to the classroom. I serve the students. I've been able to get involved in their lives. Um, I've advised a number of capstone projects um, a number of students have come to worship with us uh, here at church. So, so there's been some crossover, um, but it's, it's a good opportunity for me to get into the community and not be Pastor Chris, but be Professor Chris. And, and that's, I think, been good for me and good for, um, for our church family. Another question we like to ask here is, do you have any book recommendations or books that you're reading now uh, that you think the listeners at home uh, would benefit from? I mean, yes. Uh, how long do you have? I can list off probably a couple of dozen. Um, one of my favorite books is Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey. Uh, just a, a great book on, on um, defining ambition and, and how to, to express ambition in God-glorifying ways. Um, a couple of my favorite church books are Center Church by Tim Keller uh, Simple Church by Tom Rayner and Eric Geiger, uh, Total Church by Tim Chester and uh, Steve Timmis, um, The Trellis and the Vine by Colin Marshall and Tony Payne. Those are probably my go-to books. Um, a, a lot of stuff by Alan Hirsch I've read and really loved, uh, especially um, his book Permanent Revolution on Apostolic Leadership. I found helpful. You know, Hirsch pulls a lot from 
the world of organizational theory, but kind of uh, explicitly ties it to uh, thinking about the church in this very helpful way, kind of crosses that boundary. Um, but yeah, those might be my go-to books. Wow. Thank you for the smorgasbord of uh, books. <laughs> That's going to be real valuable. And we, we so appreciate the new reads, but I know the listeners as well. And kind of tagging onto that, is there anything you'd like to share with everyone listening out there, uh, whether it's on the organizational leadership or authentic leadership or just really anything we've touched base on today? Yeah. You know, there's a, a, a short quote from Seth Godin that I've kind of got hanging up on my wall. Uh, and, and Seth Godin writes, for the creator who seeks to make something new, something better, something important. Everywhere you look is something unsatisfying. The dissatisfaction is fuel. Knowing you can improve it, realizing that you can and will make things better, the side effect is that today isn't what it could be. You can't ignore the dissatisfaction, can't pretend the situation doesn't exist, not if you want to improve things. Living in dissatisfaction today is the price we pay for the obligation to improve things tomorrow. Um, and so I have always found myself looking to continually improve things. The biggest way in which I would love to encourage other leaders and other pastors is to be patient. If there is a change that you think will take days, it'll probably take weeks. If there's a change you think will take weeks, It'll probably take months. If there's a change you think will probably take months, it will probably take years. And if you think it'll take years, it might take decades. Um, but, but that's, I think, the pace of change. That's the pace of the kingdom. Uh, I love Caesar Kalinowski's book, Small is Big and Slow is Fast. And I think things in the kingdom don't always work the way we want them to. I mean, go read Mark chapter four, you know, God measures growth differently. God measures potential differently. And I think that we as leaders and pastors are often on the spectrum of we're so excited and so passionate and so future oriented and that things don't come to fruition. And then we get so depressed and so dejected and so downtrodden. Um, and I think we have to constantly and patiently trust in God's timing uh, and seek his wisdom and trust that he is at work, even if we can't see it. Um, and so that patience is so difficult and yet so critical. And so for me, when it comes to authenticity, in addition to these four elements, self-awareness, balance processing, internal moral perspective, and relational transparency, there's another facet to that as well that I think as a pastor has really stuck with me. Um, John Calvin, in the opening of his Institutes, writes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so what Calvin is saying is that our self-knowledge is only possible insofar as we know God. And in getting to know God, we know ourselves that much more fully. So if you think of this term 
authenticity. What it really describes is your relationship to yourself. And as believers, we know that, well, our relationship to ourself is steeped in sin. And so for me, true authenticity as a person, as a believer, as a pastor, as a husband, only comes as a result of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Chris, I just wanted to thank you again for stopping by today and just really sharing everything that you've learned so far in your journey. Uh, we'll, we'll be praying for you as you wear multiple hats and probably get two to three hours of sleep a day. Uh, but we are so encouraged and motivated just with how you're leading the way and what you're doing. So thank you again. My pleasure, Luke. Thank you. If you think about it, we want to be as authentic as our Savior. I pray for each of you on your journey that you find that authenticity that only Christ can provide. And with that, the confidence to lead your community in transparency and love, all while strengthening your ministry each and every day. I'll talk to you next week.